Today's program, Risotto and Beyond, the heartfelt story of Italian rice, presented by one of the ricest experts and esteemed Chicago chefs, Chef John Coletta uh, of Quartino Restaurant in Streeterville. Today marks the fifth event John has done for us in, the last, in our last 25 years. Uh, John hosted a program for us at his former restaurant, Calatera, where we featured Julia Child's personal assistant, Stephanie Hirsch, who gave us a tell-all about that wonderful food goddess, and John prepared Julia's dishes. By the way, I had talked to Julia Child about speaking for us, and she was very interested, and she couldn't make it because she died, so sorry about that. She, she would say, she said, she, she, her expression was that she's pushing up pars parsley now. So, in addition to John's expertise on Italian food, he's also an authority on Scandinavian food, and hosted a Scandinavian event for us when we presented PBS Scandinavian Food Authority, Andreas Vistad. And when we had Bon Appetit editor Barbara Fairchild in, John hosted a luncheon for her at Quartino's. We also did an event with John at Quartino's when he came out with his pasta book several years ago, and his late author, co-author Nancy Ross Ryan, noodled him into giving us a pastelicious program. John's background in food has much more depth than even rice or pasta. He's truly one of our nation's most accomplished chefs. Um, may I open his personal kitchen door to reveal a bit of his background? A native New Yorker, uh, John Coletta, served apprenticeships at Manhattan's Waldorf Astoria Hotel and Four Seasons Restaurant and went to Europe to work under world-renowned chefs Alain Ducasse and Joel Robichon. Uh, pretty impressive. And John returned to America, uh, where he reigned over an army of over 450 cooks at Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas, then continued in executive chef positions in Sydney, Australia, and Singapore. And somewhere you got in Norway, too, is that right? Or, pardon me? No, I just gone there to work. To work. Uh, um, but that's what I mean, you, work, you worked in, in Norway and... Oslo, yeah, so he's, he knows quite a bit about that kind of food, too. An individual gold medalist in the 1984 Culinary Olympics. He snared another gold medal in Frankfurt, Germany in 1992 as part of the Culinary Olympic Team USA. In 2004, Chef Coletta opened Quartino in Chicago, showcasing rustic Italian recipes, many of which date back 200 years. Now, when you have a great chef like John Coletta, how do you serve him up at an event like ours? We could think of no better way than having his co-author on his latest book, Monica Cass Rogers, interview him right here on our cozy stage. Monica is not chopped liver in the food world either. Monica has attended a number of culinary historians programs over the years, and we're glad to have her back today. Monica became a full-time magazine writer and editor in the 1980s, writing for national food magazines. She switched to freelance writing and photography while she raised four children. At one point, she was simultaneously freelance writing for six different sections of the Chicago Tribune, addressing sustainability, women's issues, gardening, business, architecture, and food. Kind of a renaissance lady. Mar Monica also has a blog on vintage recipes. It's, the blog is lostrecipesfound.com. Monica's first book collaboration with Chef Coletta came about after the beloved food writer and my friend as well, 
Nancy Ross Ryan died suddenly. Monica helped complete the risotto book by interviewing rice experts and chefs in Italy and learning from Chef Coletta about his recipes. Monica also tested the recipes and photographed the scenic views of Italy that you'll see in the book. I'm going to hold up the book here. Um, yeah, th this is the book, which is uh, John will be signing copies out in the reception area after, our, after he speaks. But anyway, um, Monica took a number of the food shots in the book. And before I ask Monica and John to take their front row center stage seats up here, I have a question for them. Um, is it true that at Italian weddings, they just don't throw rice at the bride and groom? They throw risotto? Is there any, any, any truth to that? No, you don't think so? Okay, maybe it's just something I heard. Okay, but please welcome uh, John Coletta and Monica Cass Rogers. Well, hello, everybody, and where'd Scott go? Thanks for the great introduction. Um, so here we are. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. So what some of you may know is that in Italy, they actually have appointed rice ambassadors who just do everything they can to speak about Italian rice and to keep the traditions alive. And we do not have an Italian rice ambassador in America. However, now that we have this book out, I have a feeling that if there was one, it would be you. <laughs> well, thank you. But, uh, you know, the, the ambassadors in Italy are really the, um, the farmers. The, um, there are so many. Uh, farmers that really are focused on producing uh, products that are flavorful, wholesome, and more, more importantly, interesting. Um, the number of species of rice that Italy has today has grown exponentially. I believe it was about 1945, there was only one, it was Arborio, and then it grew over time um, and today there's clearly, I, I believe, at least 145 different species that, that I'm fully aware of. Um, and to be able to see in that very short window of time the explosion in Italian rice, it's like nowhere else in the world uh, that has that level and that commitment to, to rice. Okay, well, Scott covered some of your background at the various restaurants in Chicago. You've got a long time history here, and then also all over the world. But um, before we really dig into talking about rice and the book, I wanted to talk a little bit about how you fell in love with Italian rice to begin with, and to get a little bit of information about your childhood. I understand your parents were both from Italy and you grew up in Queens? Yes. Um, Italian rice is just, to the way I understand it, it was, it's just another ingredient and it's a fundamental ingredient. I, I view it on the same way I view wheat, in the, same, in the same way I look at other grains or even beans for that matter. And what, what I mean by that is, is that those are basic, sustainable, simple, and humble ingredients 
that really can be elevated to extraordinary levels. Um, and too often, um, we complicate the cooking and the preparation of foods, and we really lose sight of uh, the essence of the ingredient. And you know, when you think about Italian cooking, you know, the idea of using three or four ingredients in a dish is never more pronounced than in that philosophy that the Italians have. Too often, we chefs will overextend themselves. They'll overprepare something, causing possibly uh, a failure in a dish. Well, when you're cooking Italian rice, it's really, really important to have exceptional grown rice so that the dish turns out, assuming that you don't overcomplicate it, in a very uh, finished and ex highly executed manner. And when we think of most cooking, the reasons dishes fail is they've been overworked or overcomplicated. Okay, so where was your mom from in Italy? My mother came from a very small village uh, inside of the region of what is now known as Molise. Um, it's close by Campobasso. The town is called uh, Sant'Elia Pianise, and it was a, um, a wheat-growing area. So the idea for me to have uh, known about flour and pasta making was first fundamental. The, sec the second issue was the fact that the preservation um, and integrity of Italian cooking is never more pronounced than uh, regionally. Um, dishes that grow go together often are grown together, and that it, that is so true. You know, there's a concept in Italy called zero kilometers, and what that means is that anything within zero kilometers is to be uh, grown and then prepared from that area. So there is not only the, the, the pride, the regional pride, but more importantly, the fundamental blessing of being able to have those ingredients grown so close to home. Here, especially in Chicago, we're, we, we can't do that all year round. We can only do that for a period of time. And we've also grown accustomed to having lemons 12 months out of the year and strawberries and so on. So when we think in those terms, uh, we have to be willing to sacrifice in those terms for not having a lemon 12 months out of the year. But the Italians kind of made up for that by preserving those products, by ensuring other preparations. The, the, the fundamental idea of aging rice, which is an ancient Chinese um, survival uh, tactic, was adopted in Italy. And that idea of preserving rice also speaks to the fact that you know, the preparations become much more refined and the simplicity uh, is also an important perspective. So your mom was from Molise and your father was from Rome and yes. you were exposed to um, a lot of um, her home cooking growing up and then as you became a young chef and throughout your childhood I understand that you traveled a lot to Italy mm -hmm. and while there you were exposed to Italian rice. Can you talk about some of your early memories of your first tastes of Italian rice? 
Italian rice is probably best pronounced in dishes, um, and I'm going to elaborate a little bit. When we think about, you know, the infamous arancini, well, we when we think about these preparations, you know, arancini coming from, in particular, from Sicily, but there were no rice patties there. So how did these dishes become known? Or you go to Rome and you'll have the, the infamous croquettes that are made there. How did this happen? Well, the theory is, and it's only a theory, so we, we really don't know that they once existed. And the rice-growing regions all run from uh, east to west in, nor in northern Italy, from the Po Valley uh, into uh, the Veneto. So if that's the case, rice even today has to be transported uh, all through Italy, um, realizing this, they were typically the rice was typically placed in in um, canvas sacks, and these canvas sacks were over time, the the rice that was inside would dry out, and as it dried, there were varying cooking times. Somehow, somehow, I can't explain it, and I wish I knew more about it, is that when the, the traditional sofrito method to making risotto, when you add a bouillon and you're sitting at the stove, I believe came about because of not being able to cook rice exactly because of the continuous aging and drying that went on in the rice. Um, so the cook that was at the stove could not move and the only way that that risotto could be completed or be palatable was if you were able to add more liquid or more time. And those are some of the, the issues that have stood and that became a rice making technique. Well, today things are a little bit more advanced. Technology has helped us to do a lot of things. The biggest thing that we've uh, managed to realize is we can vacuum package things and by doing that, we're able to ensure cooking times precisely um, and more efficiently in manners that uh, the most fundamental cook or the, the cook with the lowest level of skills could execute at a very high level. So, you know, the idea, can you imagine having to cook dinner at home for three or four people, having to make two or three courses and bringing them together and one being a risotto dish or one being a rice salad, you would be challenged to, to do that. You would, you would do it once and you wouldn't do it again. And inside, inside the book, it was very simple for me to document those things and to articulate those because of technology. Right? I remember cooking rice and having incredible challenges because of the cooking times. And the cooking times were varied because of the canvas Stacks, you know, today you go buy rice and it's vacuum sealed, right? Well, the, the drying has stopped, right? And cl clearly, uh, as rice ages, the one fundamental uh, challenge is being able to determine the correct cooking time. And there's only one way to do it is you have to have a consistent product, right? 
Okay, so as you mentioned, um, there are a, an enormous number of uh, varieties of Italian rice. There's actually 200, more than 200 of them. About 70 of them are grown right now. But um, we, we see very few of them here. Less than 1% of Italian rice ever makes it to the United States. And so um, a lot of people are just really unfamiliar with Italian rice, and so <clears throat> um, another thing that, that um, we talked about in doing this book was how it's, it's a little complicated to understand um, Italian rice because the Italian government um, by law requires that you have to um, categorize it. Um, and I, ha I think we have a little chart that shows the categories well, these, this is all Italian rice growing in Vercelli and after harvesting. There's some pictures of the different varieties. And then here we go. Do you want to talk about this a little bit? Sure. So the most common is the commune or originaro, the semifino, fino, and superfino. And what this means is it's the uh, structure of the rice kernels, and they all play important parts in determining uh, the cooking. The varieties that are listed, uh, many of which um, stay or are very regionalized. So you'll find them, uh, for example, the uh, Centauro, Crypto, Rubino, Celana, and Balilla, these varieties for sure are all in northern Italy, but they cross over between east and western regions. Um, Violondo Nanno is probably the most famous out of the Veneto, so is Maratelli, Rosa Marchetti, um, and San Andrea. Arborio, clearly all of you have heard and are fully aware, um, that was the, the rice that everyone has come to uh, gravitate to. It's the easiest to grow. It's the simplest. Um, I want to say, even when I worked at the, uh, the infamous uh, Four Seasons in New York, the restaurant, we would purchase arborio, even back then, to make uh, risotto. And we had no other choice. It's been a series of uh, a series of rice growth that has allowed for the uh, development of cook of Italian cooking. So today, uh, varieties as Baldo, Canaroli, and Roma are best suited for risotto making. Canaroli is probably the easiest rice to utilize. It's the cooks probably the simplest and most consistent. And when we want to think about cooking, you want to get the same results over and over again, so. Yeah, and so um, to wrap up some of what he was saying on this point, so there's the categories and the classification and then there's the varieties within those categories. And just, you know, as a rule of thumb, um, the longer and fatter the grain, the better the quality on the classification chart. So superfino, longest and fattest, and that's usually what we see here. And then as you see, as he was discussing, 
there's a lot. I mean, we just gave you like three or four examples of, but there's 200 total varieties. So, okay. So from there, how do you know which rice to choose? Can you talk a little bit about Absolutely. that? Absolutely. So going back to what grows together goes together. So if I was going to make a seafood dish, a seafood rice dish, I would find myself using violono nano. If uh, I was really, really going to make a, a, um, an arancini, I would find myself using arborio rice. Or if I was making a soup, I would use arborio. The structure doesn't hold up. Um, it cooks ra rather rapidly, even in the superfino uh, varieties. Um, those rice rice varieties that are in the the commune semifino or fino category typically are problematic. Um, the superfino rice grading is the, the, the grain that you want to select. Applying the specie to the preparation is challenging because we don't realize its full potential. Roma is another, it's a super fino rice, but it, there is also semifino, commune, and fino. Realize, realizing that it becomes very, very complicated in selecting. Today, you go to a supermarket or a grocery store, they're typically going to present you with arborio and it will not even be graded. It'll just be, and the chances are, you, in here in the States, you don't need to utilize those four categories. In Italy, it's, it's, it's uh, demanded, it's, it's part of law the food laws that are there. Um, when we think about Candoroli, again, it's the easiest to use. It's the most consistent. I wish I could tell you more as to what causes that, but that species of rice is a one that almost can be used universally. If I had to pick a rice that was the simplest to use, that would be the one. Arborio is a complicated rice to use. You need to know how to handle it. You need to understand that it cooks inconsistently. So when you're frying rice, an inconsistent product, again, when you're eating it, tends to create this flavor profile in texture that you, we all gravitate to. Um, whereas in Candaroli, you don't have that. You've got this even, consistent cooking, which when presenting any rice dish, you're reliant more on the uh, other accompanying ingredients rather than the specific rice itself. Right, thanks. So um, just so you know, in the book, we do give you a little bit more depth to the science behind how starches um, are released or held onto within the fennels of rice. So you can uh, understand that there's this exchange that happens as you're cooking the rice. And, um, and also on some of these categories, you know, if it's everyday cooking, or if you're putting it in soup and you don't mind that it loses its texture, you can play. And if you can get your hands on some of these things, sure, experiment with them. But for the book, we felt it was really important to uh, make sure that your results are going to be consistent from recipe to recipe. 
And so um, primarily, um, almost all of them are asking for carnaroli or arborio rice, unless John was after a specific texture, um, or if it was a seafood dish, then you'll see the violone nano, because that's what's used for seafood. Okay, so on to talking about the book. We're gonna go through it. Um, so we can go ahead and switch to the next slide to show the cover. Um, the chapters include antipasti, soups, salads, risotti, one-dish meals, and desserts. And we're gonna talk about all of them a little bit for you. Um, but I think people are gonna be most surprised by the rice salads. So I thought maybe we would go ahead and start with those. We're gonna sh talk to you a little bit about those. Um, when we think about rice salads in America, automatically for me, like what pops into mind is like a potluck or some community dinner where they've tried to keep the moisture of the rice intact by adding like a half a jar of mayonnaise to it, right? But that is not at all what Italian rice salads are about. Um, so John, let's talk a little bit about rice salads. What can you tell us about them? You know, when you think about this time of the year, we always think about salads, whether they're rice salads, pasta salads, vegetable salads, um, but salads are on everyone's minds and we can't get enough of them. But we very rarely think about rice as a component. Um, and, and again, to Monica's point, it's some kind of mayonnaise-based salad. Well, when we see rice salads utilized typically with extra virgin olive oil, it takes us now having to have two major components, olive oil and a species of rice that is uh, of consequence, is substantial. Uh, that presents a problem because as you go to a supermarket and look for those ingredients, you know what you find, right? The, most of it is not very uh, appealing. So again, utilizing a rice varietal, and I would go back to Candaroli, and in, rather than trying to cook it as in a risotto method, I would approach it from boiling the rice. And the usual recipe ought to be three times the amount of liquid. Um, and at that point, once and then 10 to 12 minutes, and then at that point, toss it in with vegetables or serve it separately. But olive oil is used liberally in the preparation. And doing that, it really presents a simple, tasty experience. And you're able to taste the, the inborn simplicities and, and flavors found in those rice kernels. You know, rice is so overlooked, and when we think about it, it's a staple of life, right? All throughout the world, uh, all through Asia, South America, rice is used extensively, and somehow uh, it isn't viewed with the same uh, perspectives here, and I really believe it, it deserves to be um, and one of the best ways is inside of a salad. If you've got some fresh spring asparagus and you, and you toss it with some rice, I mean, some olive oil, I think you've got the beginnings of a, of a great meal. And um, so in the chapter that is in the book about rice salads, John um, has 
some fabulous examples of some of the long-time traditional versions from Italy where they're actually pressed into a mold so that they take on a beautiful shape and then they're unmolded onto the serving platter. Um, and there's, there's very frequently uh, some kind of a condimenti or like a relish that's made of some of the ingredients like a lemon zest and an asparagus that goes into the, the molded rice. And then... Um, so they, they're probably a little bit more akin to a ca what we would think of as a casserole. A lot, a lot of times they're served warm um, or room temperature. Mm -hmm. And uh, there will be a protein displayed on the top. This one here, um, this is a great example, right? right? This one is the rice salad with fresh brook trout and asparagus. And then you pick up the lemony flavors from there's sorrel in here. And yes, some, red vein sorrel mm -hmm. is there. And some lemon zest. Um, and so some of that goes into the rice mm -hmm. uh, itself, and then you've also got it. But I realize this, it's, there's three ingredients in that dish. It doesn't come across that way. It comes across as being very approachable and accessible, and that is the fundamentals uh, are all executed. So if you go back to... And I take olive oil out of the equation, but I think in our particular cases, it needs to go back into the equation. We have rice, the olive oil, the trout, and the asparagus. That in and of itself is going to be a wonderful food experience. And at the end of the day, it's all about the flavor of the food. Okay, so we, we took you there because it's a little bit unusual, maybe not what you were expecting to see in a rice dish. But now we're gonna jump back to antipasti. And um, John started out by talking about arancini and that we obviously have a fabulous ingredient uh, or example of a recipe for that in the book. Um, and when John was talking to me about his visits to Italy growing up, he went there a lot and um, he remembers, talk, talk us about that, uh, experience you had as a young man when you first met the street vendor who was selling the, the little fried morsels and the impact that had on you? You know, to, today we eat rice croquettes or rice arancini and they're piping hot. Italians don't want to eat the food that way. They want it at room temperature. The same with a, a frittata. We, our perception of a frittata is that it's, a, it's breakfast. No, it's it's uh, a protein that is eaten as a, a pre-antipasti or stuzzichini, uh, and it's at room temperature. You know, filling zucchini flowers with, obviously, the traditional ricotta, but doing it with rice or rolling vegetables uh, around rice are fundamentals. They're, they're, they're preparations that you you know, grow, I guess the term is grow into. I don't think you, you uh, yes, you do grow up with them, but you grow into them and you grow um, finding ways in which to experience rice that you would not normally have had uh, those experiences. So Italy with a small market basket of ingredients has tremendous applications. We were able to see uh, the usage of these ingredients. Um, frittatas, uh, you know, uh, croquettes, the, the idea of uh, rice salads and using that seasonally because it's, um, 
there's a good example of a souple in Rome, but being able to see those kinds of foods tend to uh, inspire us. And, you know, I, I find cooking to be obviously inspirational, but I find it more to be um, linked to where, um, our, our, where we're living, the, the environment, and, and what we're able to do with those ingredients, I think, is uh, where the excitement in cooking comes from. So those of you who have been to Italy know that it's very popular to have an aperitivo uh, break in the afternoon. And it's become more and more uh, just the way it is that there's all these wonderful little bites there. So they've come back into popularity quite a bit there and then also here. And as you've seen in these slides, um, there, we've included the croquette type uh, preparations in the book, the frittatas where the rice adds some nice texture to uh, uh, what you would think of as a typical frittata. This is like nice for an appetizer. And then um, John serves a bazillion of these at Cortino, but the stuffed vegetable and uh, rolls of vegetables where you maybe take planks of zucchini, that's one of the recipes, or little kale bundles that are filled with. And then there's another um, type of um, rice appetizer that John has perfected. Um, and I'm gonna, so these balls all include rice flour as one of the binders. I mean, you can use egg as a binder, but he's included rice flour in these. Um, and he also uses rice flour as a binder when he makes a rice version of crostini. We're used to seeing that on toasts, but John makes a rice cake that, that has the rice flour in there as a binder, and it's, it's kind of got a texture a little bit like sushi, but a buttery flavor and uh, sans vinegar. And you're going to be able to sample that in a few minutes. So tell me a little bit about how you came to develop that. Well, when we think about the, the simple crostinis, you know, we were driven to bread and to wheat. Well, applying the same idea where we use rice as the base. Um, um, what isn't in the book is when you take, you can take rice flour and make what's known as gnocchi romana, which is a where semolina was once used. Next and, book. <laughs> and you can cook those and bake those. Um, the idea of being able to take a simple, fundamental ingredient, present it in a thoughtful manner that gives us a lot of joy, nutrition. Um, when we think of pasta, it's heavy. When we think of rice, it's not quite the same, quite the same right? But rice is completely, um, I think it has so much more to grow into, into our, our culture and, and, and certainly into preparing dishes that uh, we find to be flavorful. Um, when we make a risotto dish, we feel like we're chained to the stove, we can't move. Um, and we feel as though, you know, how am I gonna get this out? And this is the only thing I can make today. Well, when you boil it, and there's a technique in the book to do that, you can also do it in the oven, um, which is another inspired way to cook rice. Um, you're able then to 
give more uh, thought, more flavor in the cooking. If you're standing there with two hands making this traditional risotto dish, you're then lost because you're never going to be able to complete the, 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 the meal. Um, and I think that is one of the reasons that people are so challenged with rice cooking. But if you can boil pasta, you can certainly cook rice. And that was the, the fundamental premise of the book, was to be able to give that insight, that simple, ordinary insight, assuming that you're purchasing good ingredients and preparing them uh, thoughtfully and mindfully. Thanks. Okay, and then um, one, the most beautiful thing, of, I think, that's in my opinion, in the appetizer section is John's um, technique for filling um, zucchini blossoms. And as you all know, zucchini is native to Italy, but there they prefer the blossom mm. over the actual squash. So... Um, John has two versions of a stuffed zucchini blossom. You'll be able to try one of them that has mint and peas. Um, and something interesting that I learned from John is that when you, if you decide you want to do this at home and pick your own and not get them at the farmer's market, when do you have to do it? What do you have to do? The best ones, the easiest, is you want to pick the zucchini blossoms in the morning because they're opened. If you pick them at night, as you've seen, they're closed. They're typically sold here, closed, because you can pack more in a, in a container. But in Italy, they're sold where they're open, and they're held open. So now the flower is open. You fill it with ricotta, rice, whatever you're looking to do. And you can bake them or fry them. Okay. And what do you have to remember to remove from the middle of the... Uh, there is a... a um, the pistol has to be removed because it's bitter. Yeah. Okay. I personally love that John decided to do an entire chapter on rice soups. Um, we have all kinds of uh, great examples. What you see on the cover of the book is actually John's uh, soup with saffron and shrimp and leeks, which is kind of a riff on uh, Milanese. Yeah. Milanese, yes. Um, and also, you'll learn when you read in the book a little bit more about this, but when rice was initially introduced um, to the people in Italy, they thought of it as a medicinal thing and that it was meant to be uh, for soothing your stomach. And soups do that, don't they? So um, it kind of goes along with the comfort and nurturing and soothing aspect. So... Um, and the other thing is that John has really dedicated his life to celebrating regional Italian cuisine. And like, as he was saying, what grows together goes together. And several of these soups are a great example of that. Um, let's go to slide number 20. He, he, his spring vegetable soup mm -hmm. is a good example. Tell us why. Well... When we think of springtime, obviously we think of you know, the inf you know, all of the spring vegetables, but the bigger piece is uh, the rice harvest. Harvested is typically in from May to June or July. So being able to have the carryover of spring vegetables into a soup, uh, for lack of a better description, a minestrone with rice, 
I prefer over a minestrone with pasta or with beans or a combination of rice and beans inside of the minestrone, I think is a, a, a great way uh, to experience rice soups. And, you know, we go back in time a little bit, and in Asia, you know, congee uh, or the rice soups of, of China um, always had this soothing, nurturing effect. Same is true with Italian rice soups, the same soothing, nurturing effect. And the, the medium of rice is a, is a great uh, platform in which to build upon. So adding, you know, the simple brasala to a soup makes the dish extremely uh, interesting. Okay, and then you also, you do um, a rice soup with beans and broccoli. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a poulian? How do you say Puglia. 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 Um, and that has, if we can get them, I think you can get them at Italy probably, the... Mm -hmm. the Cecineri, yeah. those are black chickpeas. So black chickpeas are rare. They're typically found in southern Italy and the, they're indigenous to the region of Puglia. Um, it's a bean that takes a long time to cook, but uh, just using regular chickpeas ought to do the job also. Right. That, we're going to talk about these that we're looking mm -hmm. at right now in a second, but before we do, I wanted to get John to also mention, talk just a little bit about his rice soup with lentils and chickpeas. Um, the Castellucia lentils appear in this book a couple times. Mm -hmm. so tell us a little bit about that ingredient. You know, when we go to buy lentils, um, we see all different varying shapes and sizes. And we go to cook them. Again, they become inconsistent in their cooking. Castellucio lentils um, are typically uh, found in and around Umbria. And they're, they're prized. They're prized lentils. They're on par with the French lentilles du pie which are also extraordinary lentils. The part of the reason is when you go to cook them, you have this even cooking. So we tend to want to replicate good food often, so we need good materials in order to do that. And those lentils are extraordinary. They're difficult to come by. You usually uh, see the term Umbrian lentil used over uh, Castelluccio. Okay, and then um, we're going to go back to the, there's two examples in here of John's uh, chilled soups. And these are lovely because, as he does with many of his risotto dishes, there will be um, the uh, fresh ingredients as a topper to the soup. And that happens with, can you find the one of the, there, this one here, where you see he's got the fresh tomato and sprouts on top and then the other one with the fresh fava and um, lemon lemon zest so chilled soups again warm weather we want to have chilled soups you know and i love soups where uh sorbets are included you know if you had a chilled tomato soup and you had a basil sorbetto i think that would be wonderful right so the idea here was to take the chilled rice soup, add fava beans in lieu of, and lemon in lieu of adding a sorbetto. But the advanced addition of this soup would be to include a sorbetto made that was not so sweet, but more on the salty side, 
to either lemon or to mint would also be an extraordinary addition. Okay, we have now reached the heart of the book, which you've all been waiting for, which is Rosacci. Go to the next slide, please. All right. So um, I think it's possibly the sexiest dish anywhere, risotto. Um, and it's definitely the Italian rice dish that Americans know best. In fact, I think it's one of your pet peeves that people often will say risotto rice, and yeah, thinking sure. it's an actual rice. Right. Um, okay, so I just um, wanted to mention you. So what is it about risotto that makes it so perfect for the rices that are grown in Italy? Well, the, the, it's a comforting dish to begin with. You know, if you think of the, the elements, the ingredients, in this particular dish, we have the rice, we've got asparagus, there's typically some type of broth or liquid, and then it's completed with uh, butter and parmigiano. So those ingredients individually and collectively are satisfying. They're, they're gratifying ingredients. They, uh, they tend to nurture us in a way that foods often do, but this is a heightened experience. Um, spring asparagus, um, you know, the, the risotto primavera or spring, uh, uh, spring rice uh, risotto is often one of those dishes that we look forward to, right? The blossoming of spring, the earth is breaking, the idea of having fava beans and asparagus and peas and mint, those are wonderful uh, preparations that we want, want to experience. We add that to, to, to risotto, all of a sudden, now we have no longer a, an ordinary experience, right? We're, we're, we're excited about the season, we're excited about the food, and risotto is one of those dishes, by adding cheese to almost anything, it's improved, isn't it? So. Uh, and, then, and then also, as we were talking uh, about the science behind short grain rice, and mm. you'll be able to read more about this in the book, that um, this particular type of rice, japonica rice, has the ability to soak up liquid at the same time that it's releasing the starch. And so that's what makes that liquid so creamy, and that's why it's just, it is the perfect preparation for a japonica rice, is risotto. Um, there are a lot of quotes um, about risotto, and, and I'm gonna read one of them to you here. You must treat a risotto like a lover. Woo that lover, spoil that lover, Lavish time on that lover, and that lover will repay you. All right, now I'm going to ask John to put him on the spot. Can you give us a version in Italian? Do you know one? Sure. Okay, here we go. <coughs> what, version, what version would you like? It's just in Italian. Just okay. So here, so we can all identify with this, with uh, rice cooking, and uh, apart from it being one of those sensual dishes. It's a, it's a dish that um, we often grow in comfort to. The, 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 the concept of um, 
having food that is soothing is what we're all looking for. It's the familiar, but in a way that it becomes heightened. And we too often, we look at food um, more so from um, servicing an engine rather than um, being able to understand what nature has provided us. And the Italians spend a lot of time doing that. Um, you won't see, you know, fava beans are preferred as to asparagus. Uh, the idea of a chickpea versus a cannellini bean are the more preferred. The, um, the concept of regional cooking inside of rice is driven clearly by the market and by the season. But more in particular, there is a history and a meaning to every dish. We don't have those experiences. That doesn't make us good or bad. What it makes us is it allows us opportunities to borrow at free will. So in one way, we don't have the constraints. You know, I, when I often think of Italian cooking, <coughs> pardon me, and I think about, you know, what we see outside of Italy are dishes like um, anduja with uh, speck which is a gross error. Anduja coming from Calabria and Speck coming from uh, Alto Adige or Trentino, neither, neither one of those regions uh, supports that kind of cooking because they, they don't, those items, those in ingredients are not grown there. They're not part of the culture. So there isn't that understanding. Here in the States and outside of Italy, that we see more of that kind of cooking. And when Italians travel and they, they're exposed to that, they turn their noses up. They say it's incorrect. The real term is it's, it's, not, it's not incorrect or correct. It just isn't done. And because it, it, does, it, it isn't supported by the region, meaning it doesn't grow there, right? The idea, no one in northern Italy would take the intestines and do with the people of Calabria do to make that type of spreadable salami, which is popular today, but they know about it, but they don't per utilize it in those manners. You know, you know. Um, I remember, and we still do at Quartino. We fold whipped cream, unsweetened whipped cream, into rice dishes because I believe that those kernels get coated evenly. By doing that, it's a breach of a, one of those cardinal rules. However, however, the results are extraordinary and we continue to do it. You know, when you tell, you know, someone in Italy folding mascarpone into risotto, they would never do it. Outside of Italy, it's done, right? So. Okay, so um, to make a good risotto, you do need to use, as John has pointed out, the best ingredients, is the best you can get. And if you prepare it the classical way, it does take some time. So mm -hmm. John has gone on the record saying he has no problem with alternate methods of preparing no. risotto. Um, we do include in the book an oven cooked, using par-cooked rice, a no-stir stovetop, and a no-stir oven cooked. Um, but in the same way that 
for all of the recipes, we, we asked you to, to use the Superfino rice for the sake of consistency and to ensure that you get a good result. For the sake of consistency mm -hmm. for this Rizzoli publication, um, all of the recipes use the traditional method. And if you want to switch over and use one of these other ones, they're in there. Um, but I wanted John to just go ahead and ex explain briefly the basic steps in making a perfect risotto. So the traditional method, better known as a sofrito, it begin, you basically you're toasting the rice. So you begin with olive oil in the pan. We then add minced onion, not minced garlic. The rice is added, it's toasted, at which point a wine is added. So it moistens it. And then we begin the method of adding liquid a little at a time until the rice is absorbed. And then we finish it typically with uh, butter and parmigiano. And that's the completion of the dish. And somewhere between, I don't know, 18 to 20 minutes, the dish is completed. Again, we spoke earlier, the challenge is you can't do anything else. You're stuck at that stove for 20 minutes to do that, right? The other perspective is this. The idea of a bouillon, the idea of a broth, it was conceived because of rice having not been fully brought into its own. Uh, today, the rice is um, of high, high quality. Even at the phenol level, it's still a superior product. So if I've played with and I've utilized the idea of using water versus a bouillon, but the water must be not the chlorinated tap water. I prefer it to be distilled or a mineral water. Now you've got two ingredients that are high quality that can give you some superior results. And if you uh, build upon that, the idea of any fresh vegetable or any s fresh fish all of a sudden now the experience is really extraordinary. Right, and, and, and you will not have that chlorine taste that you can right. get if you're using mineral. Also, um, in this book, we actually do provide um, really good base recipes for a bunch of different stocks and broths um, that are used throughout the book and seafood stock. And, mm -hmm. and one of the points that John um, is careful to explain in here is that you, you, you have to start with a broth that is not overly uh, seasoned. You need Absolutely. to use a low sodium. Talk a little bit about that. When we, when we make these broths, the lighter the better, especially when we try, you know, think of the, the effort to make a, a fish broth, right? So I need these bones or I need this fish head that has no blood, the fish has to be the, the liquid has to be placed and steeped because we're fundamentally making a tea. So we're steeping. We then refrigerate this or utilize this. Now, this is two hours later, right? <laughs> and then we're masking the flavor. If you think about this, we're masking the flavor of the rice with this liquid. And if the producer of rice has gone through all these lengths to produce superior product, then we should present the rice the way it's intended to be consumed. 
and often these broths tend to mask the flavors. When I, um, when I worked in uh, Monte Carlo, using purees, we would puree vegetables. So if we were making, let's say, a butternut squash risotto or any type of squash, we would extract the juice through a centrifuge, then add the puree. So now all you had was this, this intense pumpkin squash flavor and finished with whipped cream and parmigiano, both of all of which were of superior quality. The dish now was on an incredibly high level. And assuming that you don't have the time to do that, utilizing good mineral water or even distilled water will give you some extraordinary results that you know typically are not found. So, to, to John's point, if you don't have time, yeah. But if you do and you want to make a broth, he's been careful to make sure that they're low sodium because as the risotto cooks, as you know, there's a re reduction happening. And so as the liquids reduce, the flavor intensifies. So if you started with, um, you know, a store-bought uh, broth that is not low sodium, you're going to end up as John said, with something that's like way out of whack in terms of the flavor profile. So that's why you want to start with low sodium or water. And we've given you recipes for all of those things in the book. Okay, so you've included a whopping 30 recipes for different types of risotto in this book. Mm -hmm. Some are simple, some are luxurious, some are savory. We even have a sweet one. Um, and you've been collecting these for your entire life. So let's start, let's look at a few of them. We, we have one that's a risotto uh, amatrice style. Can you find that one? It's slide number 31. There it is. So mm -hmm. this, this um, is a good example of John taking and riffing on something that existed and making it his own. Well, the idea of a matriciana is obviously um, up from a pasta dish. So if we, what we can do with pasta, we can do with rice. And that was the thinking. Um, not all rice dishes require parmigiano. I like to use Granda Padano from time to time, Pecorino Romano, Pecorino Toscano, even ricotta folded into a uh, rice dish is you know, another great way to experience it. But being able to take the common and crossing over uh, again, I go back to the idea, if you can cook pasta, you can make rice, and you can do both exceptionally well. Um, when we think of pasta cooking, there's, it's flawed also. It has you know, the idea of wheat um, and the fact that it has been uh, modified. Rice has not been modified as we know it in Italy. Um, the integrity of each of those rice kernels are prized, and in fact, there is a company called Aquarello that has taken the concept uh, even further, where they've removed the germ and polished each kernel, reinserted the germ, and then aged the rice. And there's basically three, age, three aging levels. Uh, there is one year, 
seven year and nine years. The nine years you can't have access to, there's a small quantity, it goes to typically to Japan. The seven year rice we used at, uh, we used this at um, Gibson, Gibson's Italia and at Quartino we use a one year aged Aquarello, which is the uh, name, brand name given to Candaroli species. Okay. Right, and there, there are a couple recipes in the book that specifically uh, tell you to use the aquarello rice, and we're going to talk about one of the more historic examples of that in just, in just a second. So, as John mentioned on this dish, it's based on a, a pasta sauce, um, you know, that's so classic from Emetrice near Rome, and it features the same ingredients that are used in the sauce. So there's guanciale, in there, tomatoes, red chili peppers, black pepper, and pecorino. All right, so another example of Venetian seafood risotto um, uses, uh, as John explained, violone. I always want to say that wrong. Violone nano. yeah. And that one, this one, um, the recipe uh, has a, sh a shrimp stock and tomato and seafood condimenti. So there's five kinds of seafood in there. Um, next one, this is a fun one from John, which is the Wal apple. Yeah, with walnuts and uh, walnuts and apples. And gorgonzola. Right, which again, you know, those classic combinations of gorgonzola. When you think about it, if you had gorgonzola cheese and I had a slice of an apple and I had a little bit of walnut, why not? So apply, applying that to a rice dish wouldn't be a far stretch, would it? And the same would hold true if you take those same ingredients and applied it to a pizza. They would also be, you know, well-received. Okay, and this next one, uh, one of the Chicago writers did a piece mm. about this one, and this takes us in the opposite direction from sweet with the peppery flavor of radicchio. Mm -hmm. um, and here, John has made a pesto of the radicchio leaves with almonds and lemon. And instead of using white wine, um, which is typically what you would use for a sofrito, this one has a dry red, red wine. wine. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot of fun. And then the next one, this is also one of the more gorgeous uh, recipes in the book. This one has... Sea scallops and yes. peas. Paper thin, raw slices of scallops go over the top. So you don't even cook the scallop. Mm -hmm. um, the idea of using a, a crudo or a carpaccio on top. This, so then the heat of the rice naturally cooks the fish. Okay, so now that everybody's drooling, <laughs> John, mm. what's the one main takeaway you want people to get from the chapter on risotto? I think the biggest piece is you shouldn't be intimidated by the process, you know, and I prefer in this particular case to use uh, distilled water or mineral water with high quality rice. I think combining that with the high quality butter, high quality parmigiano, and you've succeeded. That should be the, uh, the essence of risotto making. To make a broth and to, to manage all of those elements, I think requires a significant amount of training, understanding, and above all, having access to those ingredients, 
which today is becoming more and more challenging. So being able to find high quality water that you know, the magnesium is managed inside the, that water. You're, the rice producer has done their job. Now it's a fundamental, so the, the success will be significantly high. Okay, so now we are going to talk to you a little bit about Piatti Unici, mm -hmm. which is like, um, it's an interesting thing because um, meal traditions have opened to include this in Italy. So it's a single dish which would combine the primo and secondo courses of a meal into one sure. dish. Um, and in interviewing John and talking to him for the introductions that go with each one of the recipes, my favorite was when he started talking about his mom cooking in their kitchen, his childhood home in Queens, mm -hmm. and she would be up how early? Like cooking? Oh, she would start at four in the morning. Yeah, and there would be, he, he describes that there would be handmade gnocchi sure. and uh, preserved vegetables. Sure. And um, on the stove, what would be on the stove? There would be several sugos working because the process you know, the thinking was always, I wouldn't say, it was an older way of thinking, meaning the materials were not of the levels that we had to have today, so therefore the compensation had to be made in long cooking times, which all of you have experienced. But the, the primary issue was being able to anticipate and take advantage of the season that we were in. And then, of course, began the canning process, the preserving process, which was, you know, certainly uh, started in late spring to early autumn is when typically, the, you know, the cardoons were preserved and these kinds of things. So he, that being said, his mom was an amazing cook and spent a lot of time in there, but he believes that she would appreciate oh, yeah. that there's these like dishes now that combine some of the courses and make it a little easier. No, Northern Italy, it's one plate dishes. You know, when we think about Italian cooking, the forming of the meal begins with stuzzichini, antipasti, a primo, which is a pasta, rice dish, or soup dish, the main plate, and then dessert. Well, in Southern Italy, the combination is done in the pasta where the pasta becomes, the, and you get these large, larger portions of pasta that have meat sugos or fish sugos that, that are added. In Northern Italy, the concept holds true to a one plate meal, but it's typically done with beans and rice or meat and, and, and rice. And, um, those were the, the dishes the workers uh, ate. Uh, and too often today, uh, we find ourselves with the structured meals and our, even ourselves, we don't have time to eat this way, to eat in all these formats, right? So if we, and if we were to do it, you know, we would be grossly overweight because of obviously our lifestyles. But the bigger piece is to understand how these things all came together. And the idea of a one dish meal is not a bad idea. Uh, and in fact, it's probably more applicable to today's lifestyles than ever. 
So um, John's included in the book three primary categories. One is um, rice dishes that are cooked in parchment, and another is uh, rustic or saucy rice stews, and then the third are the rice-filled or stuffed meat and vegetables. So, um, and we're going to talk about each one of these here in just a second. So actually, we can look at this one. Um, of all the rice dishes in the book, um, John's recipe in this chapter for rice from Vercelli with lardo, red wine, barletti beans, and dried salami is probably most historically significant. Um, can you tell a little bit about the story? First about the Rondolino uh, family, family. And then from there about the dish so itself. The, the Rondolino family, they operate um, a rice farm in Vercelli. And going back, I guess it would be the late 1800s, up until that time, rice weeders were used. And the rice weeders were young women that came between May and June. Um, and they had barracks or ho you know, homes. And these are examples of where they lived. Um, and everything was pretty much done on this, on this farm. And they would eat this one dish meal uh, made of rice beans and, and lardo. Uh, and that was the extent of the meal. Yeah, so it was. It's called La Peniza, and um, this dish, the the beans were used. Were not. They. I put barlotti in there because it's the closest. The beans are called saluja. Saluja is the lowest level of a barlotti species. The uh, the duja. Duja is a type of salami that is eaten in uh, Piedmonte, but it was preserved in, um, in lard. So, <laughs> you know, today we wouldn't want, we wouldn't go through that. Um, and again, the idea of rice, beans, and meat, it's all in one dish, right? Uh, fish was very, very expensive, hard to come by, and especially uh, in those months, being able to cook this. This was cooked in an open courtyard in a big cauldron, and it was a big pot. The, uh, you wanted to be, the most interesting thing is you wanted to be the last person to eat the dish because there was this um, roasting of the rice kernels at the bottom. The and crispy bits. <laughs> so it was crispy. That's what you were after. So what does that really mean? We all crave texture, right? We all want these textures and flavors in dishes. So today, when you see the frying of things placed on top of something, that's in response to what was being done hundreds of years ago. And I love the bit about the wooden spoon. Yes. That. The way you know this dish is done. Well, the spoon has to stand up inside the dish, right? So you've got this pot. And the spoon, you can't. You can see it there on the, to the right, but when it it falls ever so slowly, the rice is finished cooking, or the preparation has been brought together properly. And um, there's a lot more of the story about Lemondina in the mm -hmm. book, but these women, um, I just have to tell you a little bit about them. Okay, so we've talked about that. There's one main kind of rice 
japonica. And the, the thing about it is that it, it actually, um, from beginning to end, it's just a 180-day growing and harvesting cycle from beginning to end. And so the people that were planting and harvesting the rice would come to these farms and stay there. They were migrants. And so between May and July, the whole thing would happen. And they would travel to the farms. Um, and in the late 1800s, working conditions were really, really difficult, especially for the women, Limondine. And they, the men maintained the canals and they plowed the fields with their oxen, but the women, they got to spread the manure, they got to stand in the water up to their knees and plant the rice and weed the rice, and um, these would be eight to 12 hour work days. So, um, Finally, they all banded together and the men behind them and they rose up to ask for better working conditions. And they were the first ones to win for Italy an eight-hour workday. So Limondina were the first workers' rights and women's rights activists in Italy. So if you make that dish, you're celebrating some good things. So I just had to add that. Okay, so we're going to now look at al cartaccio. So this is the parchment cooking. Tell us a little bit about, about that. The idea of encrusting something is, you know, near and dear to everyone's hearts. So as you can see, I've taken parchment paper and used that as an, en a, a, an encasing. Um, this can also be done with um, different types of aluminum foil. You can use, uh, there is this product that was developed in Italy. It's almost like saran wrap, but it doesn't burn. Um, and again, it's a takeoff of making one rice dish. So you're doing this all together cooking this in the oven. I'm sure all of you have eaten fish dishes in French restaurants where it was done in paper, right? Well, the idea is not all that far, especially realizing that in northern Italy was once occupied by France, so these dishes and these practices all remained. It's cooking rice and fish together uh, inside of paper. It's a little bit more... Um, requires a little bit more thinking, a little bit more practice, but simple, especially when it comes to sealing the, the paper, you need egg whites so that none of the steam can spread away and stuff like that. So it's uh, a dish I would suggest attempting, but only after you've made it, made it a few times. Don't how, how many people have ever made an empanada? Anybody? Okay. Well, I have to tell you, it's kind of the same. If you take a, um, you can even use cake, cake pan liners, you know, just the little parchment circles. You just fold them in half. You put the fish and the, and the risotto in the center, and then you fold the edge the same way you would an empanada. And it comes, it's a lot of fun. So don't let them put you off. You have to try this. They're really fun. And they're actually, um, it's light. It's a lighter preparation for the rice. And very, fr and when you you know present it at the table and you cut it open, it's, it's very showy, and so it's a beautiful thing. All right, so oh, and then the, at the end of this chapter, we include 
several examples of um, little bundles. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about that. The idea of uh, braising, um, you know, slow cooking, taking underutilized cuts of meats and filling them. You know, we've all eaten um, a chicken breast that has been filled with wild rice or some, you know, remember going to a banquet maybe many, many years ago, they would have these rice dishes of chickens filled with rice. So the idea of having a one unique dish, um, whether it's utilizing beef or veal or lamb or pork, uh, is in utilizing rice as a secondary uh, component, I think is an important perspective also to that we should not let this go. Uh, the simplest is to take a chicken breast, you know, flatten it and then roll it up and have rice inside. Right. So, uh, no, we're going to take questions in just a second. So, this one is made with pork, and um, you've and it's filled with. Um, Raisin and pine nut risotto. It's fabulous. And you make a nice sauce with it. But my favorite, I have to say, it tastes like a whole Thanksgiving dinner in this little bundle. And it's his version. It's like uh, you take um, turkey and you make really thin slices. You pound them out. And then you put um, what all goes in there. I'm trying to remember. It's in the recipes in here. But um, I think maybe sage leaves go over the top or something. Yeah, and like the the idea of turkey and sage, chicken and sage, they all oh go God. they go they all go very yeah. well together, especially those those autumn flavors. Yeah, and then you make a little, um, you know, some vegetables and and then the the pan juices after you uh, make the little bundles, you mm. save them and you make a little gravy. It's so good. You have to try, it. and use a lot of string. <laughs> So don't hesitate. You cut that off in the end. Okay, so now we're to the last part of this adventure. Mm-hmm. Desserts. Which, yes, and these are among my favorites as well. There, there are so many amazing desserts in here. So the texture, again, of the japonica rice being so creamy, being that it's short-grained and it's naturally predisposed to releasing some of the starch makes it perfect for puddings both hot and cold. Yes. So traditionally in Italy, there there are more um, there's more examples of puddings where they're using a combination of savory and sweet mm-hmm. ingredients. I mean, that's been going on there forever. It's, it's hot right now in America, but tell us a little bit about that. You know, we all know about rice puddings, right? <laughs> we all have grown up on that, but uh, rice puddings in Italy are extraordinary. They're um, a combination of, the, as Monica said, of sweet and and say uh, salt, sweet and savory, and that holds true when we when things like mustarda are injected into um, a, a a a dessert. Um, the thinking here is to be able to take the simple rice. Here's where rice gets masked. It's, you know, there's a contradiction in cooking, and especially in, in Italian cooking. When we make a, a rice gelato, we're masking the flavor of that rice. There is no way 
that, you know, to sit here and, and for me to say that the flavor of the rice can come out and be f tasted inside of the gelato, that would be a lie because it, it's too cold. The, the gelato clearly is, is, isn't representative. The best representation would be in a rice pudding because the dish can be served at a warmer temperature. The rice kernels have a time to macerate when the pudding is made, but more, more importantly, they, those flavors kind of work together, especially in our culture. We, they tend to be more and more accepted. Here's an example of uh, an eight with apricots and uh, certainly with rosemary. And I think And rum. And rum. Yep. And when we think about uh, apricots, rum, rice, and rosemary, it takes us right away to, to Naples, right? You know, Naples, when we have the infamous baba rum, it's the, you know, rum is, you know, when you think about it, how did these things come about? The f only way they would have come about, they had to be pirates, right? So he's, when you think of all of Italy, there's the only rum produced is in uh, Campania, uh, where, nearby Naples, to make baba rum. And this was the idea of preparing this dish with apricots, rosemary, and the infamous rum. It's even more delicious than it looks. Mm. Um, so there's so, some examples of tarts in there and puddings of all shapes and sizes mm. and kinds. So there's, there's something for everybody. Well, um, so we've reached the end of paging through this book. And um, I don't know, is there anything that you learned that you didn't know when you started this adventure that you wanted to share? You know, as you write a book, you really come to the conclusion that um, there's so much more to learn. And you really, real, you really come to a point that you're never satisfied. You know, writing this book was, for me, a distillation. And, and it wasn't... Um, I was, yes, I was satisfied. Yes, the book was turned out great. Yes, of course. But being able to do uh, another book similar where it's the, 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 the second chapter to this real book where, where more and more depth is, is placed in this. I, um, I'm hoping that someone will take this book and elaborate and go even further um, and it's a stepping stone, I believe. When we think of pasta books, we, there must be thousands of books about pasta and the nuances. And in rice cooking, we see very little, especially in the Italian sector. We see more all through Asia, India, of course. Uh, but the biggest piece is that I'm hoping this book inspires people, number one, to cook with Italian rice, but more importantly, to evolve this and take this to, to another level and utilize this a, as a guideline to cook nutritious meals that, that uh, are satisfying. How are you going to find these rices that we're talking about in the book and some of the other ingredients? We have a glossary in the book. You can get most of these ingredients from Italy and other... Um, specialty grocery stores that carry Italian product. You can also order them online. And we include those addresses and then, you know, with, with the actual ingredients, I think we've included 
as, as many places as possible, good places to go. And then in, in terms of um, some dishes that require um, special sausage, like he was talking about the solugia uh, or duja. Well, the, one of the recipes in the book um, asked for a young salami, the, the, the dish that the, um, so it's a soft, uh, kind of meant to break up into the beans in that borlotti dish that we showed that the limondina made. And there are several um, specialty makers of sausage, little artisanal makers in the city, and then also Italy has those types of ingredients as well for um, a young salami. So we've tried to include that in the book where we could. Can you talk about Aguayalo? Yeah, yeah, that's great. And your, your concerns, oh, I'm sorry. The, the question is um, arsenic being found in rice and having poisonous levels. Is that absolute? Okay. Um, the best, and, and that's a fair question, um, when we think about ingredients moving around the globe, um, we want them today to be in contained formats, right? Um, Aquarello is probably the best example. There are many, many producers today that place the ingredients under uh, vacuum sealed. Um, but again, if we're putting in rice that is high levels of arsenic from pesticides, uh, I question the farming methods. You know, at one point, uh, Aquarello was fully organic, but in order to meet uh, consumer demands, it's no longer an organic product. So limiting the pesticides. But we also have to realize that if we're in a rice growing region and there are five farmers, for example, and the, there happens to be one farm that's organic and the other four are using pesticides, the obvious happens, right? So for something to be 100% organic, I'm not quite convinced. I think the best uh, examples for in the Italian rice sector are to utilize well-known brands. I think that they really go out of their way to provide uh, not only safe, but sustainable products, right? And I, Aquarello is clearly my favorite for varieties of reasons, mainly uh, from the cooking perspective. So I'm able to replicate the dish time and time again. Well, I have to tell you, first of all, that when, um, okay. <laughs> oh, I have to pause for a second. Okay, there are mentors in the world. We don't always know how it happens, it's a magical thing, but when I was a very young girl out of college, I was working full-time, uh, my first job, as a writer for Restaurants and Institutions magazine, and um, Nancy Ross Ryan and I had a real affinity for one another, and she became my mentor at a, as a food writer at a very young age. Well, fast forward a million years, and um, John's agent reached out to me and said, we have a project that we think you would be a good fit for. And then she told me that Nancy had passed away. She didn't know that I knew Nancy 
or that Nancy had been my mentor. So as soon as I heard that, I was like, absolutely, we'll take on this project. So Nancy had already been working with John for quite a while on conceptualizing and developing um, how this book was going to go. John had already brought in a, a fabulous photographer to do most of the food photography that you see in this book, Stephen DeVries. He's amazing. Um, so when I came on board, um, files were turned over to me, but unfortunately, almost none of Nancy's work survived. So I pretty much had to start from scratch. So I worked with John really carefully, did the interviews again. I went to Italy and interviewed rice experts there. Um, I interviewed his friends, uh, the Rondolino family, at their rice farm. That's where the photos were taken that you saw there of the rustic places. Um, interviewed Paolo Marchi um, in order to meet the rice ambassadors. And so um, it's pretty much had to write the whole thing, unfortunately. I mean, it would have been great if some of Nancy's stuff had um, survived. But she did all of the initial recipe development work with John before I came on board. Yeah, I think they're great. Um, I think that, yeah, no, the, the question is how do you incorporate the electric rice cookers? Um, I think there's a place for them. Um, I'm of the, because of the way I approach rice and the, the rice species that I utilize, um, I don't dedicate that amount of space in a, in a kitchen to do that. Um, even my kitchen at home is, is sizable, but I don't have the space for a rice cooker. It's not that I don't like them, I just don't have the dedicated space. So the space has to be dedicated. So after you know, think the process through, it has to stay there continuously, right? I can do many things with a pot, right? And primarily is I, I'm, a, I'm of the opinion today, I've changed my methods as to uh, broths and things, things like that unless they're extracted uh, I still prefer to use pots, and I don't, um, for the lack of space, I think that's the biggest concern I have, is with rice cookers. I, the, you, you buy a rice cooker, that's all I can do with it, and I can, yes, I know you can use it for other things, but I don't want to adapt recipes. I, as a, as a chef, don't want to adapt recipes that way. I prefer to uh, use pots. And, and for most of the recipes in this book, um, like the primi piatti, where it's filled with risotto preparations, pretty much. And the same thing for a lot of the um, appetizers that are stuffed with rice. Or, so you, you, that step that happens where you're opening up the grain of rice to um, be able to absorb the liquid, you know, I don't know that you could really do that with a right, you know, I mean, where you're, you're like making the sofrito and you're, you know, so we just built the book around those methods. Maybe take it and then apply some of John's uh, mix-ins and uh, condimenti and et cetera and see what happens. Well, John describes this really in detail. It's something called al alonda, right? Alonda refers to, the question is, at one point is the, rice best palatable, 
Am I right to say that? Okay. So I believe this. You should cook things the way you like them. Forget what everyone else says. Okay. And if you, you know, if you like rice that's overcooked, cook it this way. Okay. Cook it to the point. Forget what's right or wrong. There, there is no right and wrong in cooking. It's what you prefer, what you like. Forget whatever anyone else says. When we, too often we try to do things that are from a, um, a theoretical perspective. And the theories, when people that are practicing theories don't understand the, pra the, the, the function of those theories, then t the dish is not going to turn out. I mean, it's that simple. But... If we want, or and you prefer the rice overcooked, then cook it more than you should. When we think about rice in a soup, think about it very clearly. The rice is overcooked, make no mistake, right? We, we, and we have to be clear on these things. The, the rice inside of a dessert must be overcooked. It can't be al dente, it's impossible, right? When we think about risotto making, the rice must be cooked, but where uh, the challenge comes in is selecting the ingredient. So if that rice is um, of inferior quality, it's going to cook uneven, giving you those kinds of results. So, you know, everyone sits there with, you know, clearly if you're not a professional chef and you're not doing it every day and, you know, if you're cooking every day in your home, the chances are you know that product, you know the pan you're cooking in, you know your stove you're working with, you know exactly the way things are going to work, okay? You're not going to have those issues. If I'm making this dish twice a year, the, the dish, chances are it's not going to work out. And I think that's where the trouble comes in in cooking is not realizing um, the preparations we're reading out of a book instead of, okay, let me make this dish a few times till I understand it, and then I can make it the way I like it, right? And if I want my rice overcooked, that's my damn business. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and, and just as, as a, you know, home cook myself, testing these things, like if you, with the risotto, you're, you're going to have that little pot of simmering water or broth, and then you've got your, uh, we, we actually go into detail about all the cookware and everything too, so to help you, but you'll have your little skillet where you're making the sofrito, and once you add the wine, it, it'll suck that up really quickly, and then you'll start incorporating just little quarter cupfuls of the uh, hot, this, you keep it at a really low simmer and you just start adding those cupfuls in and stirring. And then um, after a while you'll see that as you're stirring with, um, there's actually a risotto spoon that's there, that has a little hole in the middle that allows the uh, risotto to go through. Um, and you'll see that the, that the risotto starts to, to move in a, in a sort of slower pattern but just taste it at that point, you know, like just start to see. And then once you, um, then frequently you'll, you'll be stirring in the cold butter and the cheese at the very end and, and um, you put a lid on it for a second. And then, so if you want it a little bit more overcooked, then you would just let it sit a little longer at that stage. Absolutely. And, you know, so, but once it's making that wave pattern in the pan, it's usually pretty close to... You know, but have all your ingredients there. You can't, like John says, you can't move once you start it. You kind of have to keep, keep it going. Does that help? I don't know. Oh, the one, the no. turkey rolls. No, oh. no. 
No. You'll no. have to make it. You know, we, we, we make four different risotto dishes at Quartino, and we make two risotto dishes and an arancini dish at Gibson's Italian. The biggest reason is uh, Italians are entrepreneurs, especially the uh, producers, the rice producers. So imagine you have this northern part of Italy producing arborio rice. And someone came along and said, well, let's make ganderoli. Someone then comes along and let's make baldo. Let's, and they chose to do that in order to give differentiation and designation to a dish. The Violono Nanno was a, a, a rice species that was probably not well documented, but the Venetians used the, utilized it for a lot, very, very long time. The species of Caneroli um, just lent itself to be more universally utilized. But the, to answer your question, it was driven by creating customers. So when we look today, um, an example of um, broccolini, where it's a, a hybrid, right? Broccoli and asparagus come together. Why was it created? Very much for the same reason, to create a market. And, and there's actually only 70 of the 200 that are in the book that are actually being grown right now. And um, the scientists there do talk, you know, they, they, they are trying to, like, um, make things more disease-resistant, higher yield, and all that stuff. And so whenever they come up with a new strain that does any of those, achieves any of those things, then that comes to market. But there's a really fun story. Um, about the uh, parentage, uncertain parentage of Italian rice. And they've got all these um, rice geneticists trying to figure out uh, the, you know, the source. Well, so basically there was this Jesuit priest who um, went to China. And for whatever reason, he smuggled out a packet of, Ita of um, Philippine rice and sent it to Italy. And that rice was planted, and for whatever reason, it did better. Um, it grew better than some of the strains of Italian rice that they had. And so then that kind of got into the whole rice gene pool there, and nobody's really certain. <laughs> so they're working on it. They're trying to figure it out. But it's kind of a fun story. We're all done. Yay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Sure will. Um, the f there are some zucchini flowers with the zucchinis attached. Uh, there's not enough of them, so use them sparingly or consume them sparingly. The they came in yesterday. They weren't of high quality, and I only selected the ones that were good. There is a rice salad that has a variety of uh, vegetables around that. There is also a frittata of rice, and then we made a, a crostini of rice with uh, some uh, goat cheese ricotta on top. Okay. Yes, they're all labeled. Those are just rice packets just to give some aesthetic value to the table.